Greetings and salutations, and welcome to the Muni Lowdown, a weekly podcast produced by DebtWire Municipals. My name is Young Lim. I am the desk editor here at DebtWire Municipals. Today is Thursday, August 29th, and we've got a full house of interesting stories to discuss. From the Windy City of Chicago, a double dose of stories from reporter Caitlin Devitt, who will be discussing the private placement deal on a P3, which stands for Public-Private Partnership, in Kentucky over construction delays. Caitlin will also be talking about bondholders of the National Law Enforcement Museum in Washington, D.C., who are holding off on aggressive actions on the defaulted borrower based on a July conference call. And from sunny Miami, possibly to be ruined by Hurricane Dorian, Simone Barabo will focus on the federal cuts to Medicaid that will affect the U.S. Virgin Islands and Puerto Rico. And speaking of Puerto Rico, we have our San Juan-based reporter who, with the island, survived Hurricane Dorian. She will talk about Cofina bondholders and their challenges in the restructuring. But let's start with Caitlin. Caitlin, how are you doing today? I'm good, Young. How are you? Good, thanks. All right, tell us about something called uh, Kentucky Ward. What exactly is it? And I believe it covers all 120 counties in Kentucky? That's right. It's a project to provide all 120 of Kentucky's counties with um, broadband access. So they're going to stretch um, about 3,300 miles of fiber lines across the state. And it's, as you said, a public-private partnership. The state entered into it in 2015 with McQuarrie Group is the private partner on it. And and the project is uh, supposed to provide access, as I said, broadband access to all the counties. The state is going to have responsibility for the broadband access to the state buildings. And then the private partners will then um, uh, then hook up you know, anybody, any of the private residents or other or other businesses with broadband access. Just a side note, I think Macquarie Group is based out of uh, Australia, and they've had a history of being involved in P3s. Uh, So exactly, what is the problem with the project? Well, the project is, as probably anybody who's had their kitchen or anything redone is familiar with, it's, it's behind schedule and it's over budget. So it's supposed to finish about this time. It was supposed to originally, when they when they set it up in 2015, it was supposed to be finished about this time, the summer of 2019. It's about a year and a handful of months behind now. I think the date is is November of 2019 that they think they're going to have it done, and it's roughly you know 120 million dollars over budget. So tell us about the bonds associated with the project. The state has about $315 million worth of bonds backing the project, and those were the bonds originally issued for it. Those are backed by availability payments that the state makes. That's subject to a state appropriation. Kentucky has a two-year budget cycle, so every two years they appropriate for the debt service and, and the availability and the availability payments that go to the private partners. Those are monthly availability payments. Now, recently, what we wrote, what I wrote about this week is they closed a private placement for $100 million, roughly $100 million, about $93 million of that that goes to the private partner. That's a private placement with Morgan Stanley, and that finances a settlement that the state reached. The state was sort of on the hook in, you know, you could sort of argue about whether, about the fairness of this, but the state was on the hook for some of those construction delays. And so they had to reach a settlement with the private partner over it, and that settlement is about that $100 million or $93 million payment that they reached in late December. And they just financed that, as I said, at the private placement with Morgan Stanley, and that is um, the most recent financing they did for the project. 
Oh, I see. So that's the newest finance you wrote about this week. So tell us more about if they share the same security. The they technically don't have the same security. The available the financing, the private financing is just backed by appropriation payments from the state. So again, that's going to be every two years they're going to appropriate for the debt service for the financing, and then. The, as I mentioned, the public bonds that are outstanding have the availability payments backed by the appropriation. Now, those are technically two different structures, but of course, the ultimate payer on both is the state, and it's going to be the state general fund. And so that's the ultimate payer, that's the ultimate um, pledge on, on both of those bonds. Also, that's why we've seen some of the project get in trouble, because there's been political pushback as the project's gone behind budget and over costs. You've seen a lot of state lawmakers and even uh, Governor Matt Bevan himself hesitate and express reluctance about appropriating some of the payments because of the problems with the, with the project. And so you've seen actual debates on the General Assembly floor over whether or not they should appropriate. You've also seen bills associated saying that we should stop the bills introduced saying that we should stop the project. Those bills have gone nowhere, and in the end, the state is always appropriated. But as our listeners probably know, that's the risk associated with appropriation bonds. The political risk is often associated with it, especially if a project like this becomes increasingly controversial and unpopular. Right, and speaking of that, i got one last question on this topic. So let's talk about the state auditor. I think he had reservations, or he had a report last year sort of um, criticizing the project altogether. That's right. State Auditor Mark Harmon in September of 2018 put out a report that was really deeply critical of the project. And he said it's going to end up costing, he, he predicts it's going to end up costing the state $1.5 billion on top of the um, roughly $1.3 billion that it's now on the hook for over the 30-year life of the bonds. And he's actually in the midst, so that was, that was a report that came out last year very critical. It was sort of part of this, as I said, this uh, bigger political opposition to it. And the office is actually, um, the auditor's office is actually in the middle of a second phase of its examination. So that's not done. They're probably going to put out something. I checked with them yesterday, Tuesday, and they, they're still in the midst of it. They haven't put anything out, but they're taking another look at a deeper kind of look at some of the, some of the uh, aspects of the project. So they'll probably come out with another, a fresh report on that. All right. Well, thanks, Kaylin, for uh, your coverage on that. Let's move on north to another story you wrote about uh, in the nation's capital on the National Law Enforcement Museum. Uh, tell us a little bit about it and how much debt is associated with the with the museum. The National Law Enforcement Museum, as you mentioned at the top, is in Washington D.C. It's near the National Mall. It's a very high-profile kind of new museum that opened. They opened in October of 28. So very recently, and they showcase law enforcement and first responders, and that's sort of, you know, and that's sort of what their exhibits are, and that's that's who their audience is. They have about $105 million worth of tax-exempt debt. They issued that in 2016 to finance the museum. That's uh, senior and subordinate lien bonds. That's about how much debt they have outstanding for that. There's, there's three series of that. Uh, when exactly did the uh, museum open? So the museum opened, as I said, in October of 2018, and and it almost immediately defaulted on bonds. It defaulted in January of this year, so that was just you know a few months later on the subordinate lien bonds, 
And then in January, it's missed a payment on the senior bonds, on the A and B senior bonds. And they expect those defaults to continue at least to January of 2020. The bond payments are due in January and July. So they expect it to continue at least to January of 2020, if not longer. And that's so that that was pretty quick when you talk to bondholders. They talk about how quick that was. It opened and then almost immediately under extremely underperforming projections of visitors and fundraising, it defaulted. So you've talked about two defaults uh, this year. So how are bondholders reacting to it? The bondholders are at this point holding off, as you said, on any aggressive actions. They're not asking for some type of restructure and they're not going in for their lien. They don't have a lien on the building, which is often the case with these sort of nonprofit tax exempt situations. There's a mortgage, there's a lien on the mortgage. They don't have that in this case because it's on federal land, so it's prohibited. So they don't have a lien on that. They have a lien on the gross revenues of the of the museum and some of the some of the fundraising. So they're holding off on any aggressive action, any restructuring. You could tell they're clearly frustrated when you look at transcripts from bondholder calls. When you talk to bondholders, there's a clear level of frustration. Partly, it's not just because of the quick default. It's also because they feel that the museum hasn't been as communicative and as transparent as it should be, given the situation. They want kind of more frequent communications and more frequent um, uh, uh, disclosures on EMMA. But in any case, they're, they're giving the museum time. The museum has this big business plan in place now that they are going, that they've, they've had a big leadership turnover. They have this new plan, this new business plan for how they're going to stabilize and then build and improve revenues. And, and the bondholders are giving that some time at this point. All right, Caitlin. And interesting enough, uh, you're, you're, you're bringing up the, you wrote about the National Law Enforcement Museum. To our listeners out there, we are, Deadwire headquarters are based in uh, Times Square. And I took a walk the other day, and I saw among the billboards there with the soda and the mar- and the fast food places, there's a huge billboard of, ironically, a National Law Enforcement Museum. Now, I did a little research, and based on the numbers that I saw, to rent a billboard for a day in Times Square costs roughly like 7000 a day, up to like a million dollars a year. Now, can you imagine, as a bondholder, finding out that a, a chunk of money is spent on advertising in Times Square in New York City when you have a niche museum in the nation's capital where I think the ticket prices are like $22 per person compared to free at the Smithsonian. So I'm wondering as a bondholder, what, how do you think they feel? And two, as a tourist in New York City and you see a billboard, would you hop on Amtrak and just go down there? Probably not, right? Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, it's a, like you say, it's a real niche museum. So And Times Square you know, has a huge amount of of range, but you'd have to kind of have a reason to go down there. For bondholders, I can just say I can't say how they feel, but I can say that that you see that they drill down pretty hard on on how the museum is spending, how the how the fund that runs the museum is spending its money, and that, as you say, carries a pretty high price tag. All right. Well, thanks, Kaylin, for your coverage, and uh, keep us tuned on the latest on those two stories. Thank you. All right. Let's move on to sunny Miami, and hopefully. Um, you won't get any damages from the hurricane of this coming weekend. Hi, Simone. How are you down there? Good. How are you doing, Young? All right. So speaking of the hurricane, looks like Hurricane Dorian mainly spared Puerto Rico, but what happened in the Virgin Islands? Unfortunately, 
unfortunately, it looks like it was a direct hit, and it looks like it hit as a hurricane, not a tropical storm. And this was a hit in a place like Puerto Rico that couldn't really afford to be hit again. That's, of course, because like Puerto Rico, it was still recovering from the 2017 hurricanes. It hadn't even rebuilt, fully rebuilt its hospitals. Its dialysis center had been reopened, but not its oncology center. And you can no longer get knee and hip replacements on the islands. That means people who need those procedures or who have cancer need to come to the mainland, which is obviously a bad situation for a number of reasons. So as of right now, it's not clear how bad the damage is, but it was a direct hit on an already weakened group of islands. Well, like Puerto Rico, can the Virgin Islands handle a destructive storm right now? Right. The storm comes at a particularly bad time for a couple of reasons. The Virgin Islands is in the middle of budget season. Their fiscal year ends at the end of next month. I was planning on covering a couple of budget hearings this week, but they were canceled. The government is short on funds, and agencies are warning. When I say that it's short on funds, this is, this is totally unrelated to Dorian. But they're short on funds, and agencies are warning that it's reaching emergency levels. The Waste Management Authority, for instance, said it was so short-funded that it can't cover the cost of disposing solid waste properly, which leaves the territory at risk of a public health crisis. And also, with the fiscal year end, the Virgin Islands is about to see a huge drop in Medicaid funding. After the 2017 hurricanes, the U.S. started covering the Virgin Islands and Puerto Rico's share of Medicaid payments, but that'll drop back down to 55% if Congress doesn't do anything by October 1st. Well, why is this Medicaid deadline coming up now? So the original congressional legislation increased the amount from 55% to 100% for two years. That was, of course, after... Irma and Maria as part of the aid package. And you had a bill get out of committee that would have kept the coverage at 100% before Congress went into recess earlier this summer. But then everything that went down in Puerto Rico went down. And most of the money in that bill was earmarked for Puerto Rico, which of course had three governors in less than a week because of now former Governor Ricardo Rosello's infamous chat scandal. And, of course, there have been a plethora of FBI investigations. And so now Congress is wary of handing money over to Puerto Rico to a government that has shown itself to at least have the potential to be corrupt. And along with that, the Virgin Islands is really an afterthought. It's a much smaller population than Puerto Rico, around 100,000 compared with 3 million. So you're not really going to get enough Virgin Islanders moving to Florida or some other swing state to affect an election like you would with Puerto Ricans. And since they have no voting representation in Congress, it's an uphill battle to get lawmakers' attention. So this is really bad for the Virgin Islands, because if nothing changes by the end of next month, they're going to have to kick more than half of the island's residents off of Medicaid. And that's obviously bad for residents, and that's bad for hospitals. Is it likely that there'll be legislation will pass on time? It's really hard to say. Local lawmakers down there have been optimistic. They're they're certainly doing everything they can to lobby Congress, but between 
two Virgin Islands Senate hearings, one in late July and one last week, there was a shift. The first hearing, there was optimism that the federal government would pay the island's full share. And at the second, they seemed optimistic about getting an 83% match, which is still higher than the 55%, but it's a significant difference between 83% and 100%. And the Virgin Islands hospitals are public hospitals. They're semi-autonomous agencies, and they're subsidized by the government. Well, so the, will the government be able to make up the difference in, in funding for these hospitals? Well, anything's possible, but I wouldn't say it's likely. One of the hospitals asked for an increase of $6 million for this year. That's more than a 25% increase, and even that would leave it running at a deficit. The Virgin Islands government just really doesn't have any money to spare. And you can see the dire situation the government is in in another way. Federal money that passes through the Virgin Islands government for the hospital is being garnished to force the hospital to pay their power bill. And the Water and Power Authority is also obviously a government agency. So even though the hospital is owed significant money by the Department of Labor and other on-island agencies, the central government is now deciding which agencies most desperately need money in a really aggressive way. And I want to go back to something that I said at the beginning. These hospitals haven't even been rebuilt after the 2017 hurricane. After two years, they're still waiting fully rebuilt, I should say. They've, they've been partially rebuilt. But after two years, they're still waiting on federal FEMA funds. Will the hospitals, they, will they receive the FEMA funds eventually to rebuild entirely? So two years later, they're still assessing the damage and what they need to rebuild. Under FEMA rules, they get money if a structure is more than 50% destroyed. So they're hoping that the buildings are found to be more than 50% destroyed and that they'll get the federal money and that they'll be able to be a more full-service hospital, able to treat people who have cancer, for instance. All right. Well, thank you, thank you so much, uh, Simone, down there. And uh, stay safe this weekend. Hopefully, uh, Dorian weekends before it gets to the mainland. And take care of yourself. Yeah, it's not looking good. According to the last forecast. <laughs> All right. Hang in there. All right. Let's finish up with, speaking of uh, Hurricane Dorian, we're, we're going to finish up with Ava Lorenz in San Juan. How are you doing down there, Ava? Fine. How are you? We're doing well. Thank goodness the hurricane spared us. Aside from a little bit of rain, it moved headed north, so we didn't get um, a hit, a direct hit. Uh, so there was very, very little damage, thank goodness. I mean, very, very little uh, impact, thank goodness. Good. I'm glad to hear that. Let's focus on the story that you wrote um, recently about uh, COFINA. Give us briefly a little background about the restructuring of it. Well, COFINA stands for the Puerto Rico Sales and Use Tax Financing Corporation, and it was one of the first steps that was restructured, $17 billion, as a matter of fact. The, the restructuring plan went into effect in February, and it, it had two parts. In the first part, the Commonwealth and the COFINA bondholders settled a dispute that they had over who owned the sales and use tax, so they decided to divide it. 5.5% uh, of the 11.5% sales and use tax, because it's 11.5%, but then there's a percentage that it's uh, uh, used by COFINA, and the Commonwealth wanted to have that 5.5%. Uh, but anyway, what they did was they divided that, and then COFINA agreed to keep 53.6%, and the rest was going to go to the Commonwealth. 
the Commonwealth gets about 400 million a year up for the next 40 years. Another part of the debt plan uh, entail uh, how the bond exchange. And in that bond exchange, the Cofina bondholders agreed to exchange their bonds for new bonds, whose value was, of course, cut. The Cofina senior bondholders uh, recovered 93% of the value of their original bonds. And then you have the junior Cofina bondholders, and those got 53% of the value of their bonds. What are exactly are the objections to the COFINA restructuring? Well, uh, opponents of the COFINA deal said the, that their adjustment plan was going to result in a worsening of the economic crisis because it was going to lead to more austerity measures, uh, cutting public services and pensions over the next 40 years. Uh, during the process leading to the restructuring, the Oversight Board received over 322 letters, most of them rejecting the plan. Um, one of those letters was from a nonprofit entity called Espacios Abiertos, or Open Spaces. And one of the things that they said was that the restructuring did not provide enough relief for Puerto Rico to be able to achieve future growth because the annual debt payments were going to increase uh, from $420 million in this fiscal year to nearly $1 billion in fiscal year 2041. Another one of the opponents, uh, the GMS Group, uh, which owns about $500 million in Cofina Junior bonds uh, that were distributed about in about 5,000 clients, said that um, Cofina, alleged that Cofina may have filed for uh, bankruptcy fraudulently, because the government never, of course, issue audited financial statements. What kind of challenges have been filed against the restructuring? Well, um, the first of all, I have to say that the the restructuring of Cofina contains some dispositions uh, that pretty much made it a done deal and make challenges very hard. However, that did not stop specifically two kinds of challenges that are still alive and they are still in the appeals court. Uh, one of them was filed by several labor unions and an independent lawmaker in which they told the court that uh, the COFINA deal uh, uh, was approved in an unconstitutional manner because the law that the legislature had to approve to enable it, uh, when the legislature had to handle it, um, the House violated certain regulations. They did not allow some lawmakers to speak. So what, that is one of the challenges that has been raised. And then another challenge was raised by a group, several retail bondholders headed by Elliott Management. And um, one of, among the things that they say, apart that from the secrecy, uh, they contend that the institutions that helped negotiate the plan also bought COFINA bonds at distressed prices, and uh, they were allowed to vote for the plan and to enjoy substantial profits from it. And they also want another allegation is that, that there were special benefits that were given to uh, COFINA bondholders who reside in Puerto Rico, whereas uh, the investors, the most of the modest-sized investors in the 50 states did not participate in the confidential process 
And of course, they uh, they also lack the resources to try to get uh, more favorable favorable terms uh, in th- uh, throughout the negotiations. All right, let's. Uh, I've got one last question for you be- for you before we go. So tell us the layers with the challenges, and why do you think the Cofina senior bondholders want to intervene in this case? Well, yes, uh, the Cofina senior bondholders, the coalition, the, co- uh, the senior bondholders coalition. They asked to intervene. Of course, uh, these are this is one of the groups that benefited uh, that obtained a higher value for the bonds. They got 93% of the value back, so they didn't lose that much. And of course, uh, one of the reasons they did not say in their document. However, uh, one of the reasons, of course, is that the um, appeals court decline or refuse to dismiss the case on equitable mootness, which was uh, the what the what the oppo- uh, those who want to dismiss the case said. Um, equitable mootness is the doctrines that appeals courts shouldn't undo bankruptcies where parties have uh, justifiably relied on bankruptcy court's decisions. Uh, and of course, the court decided not to dismiss the case. Um, of course, um, uh, that that is a good thing for them because they can continue it. And of course, uh, 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 the senior bondholders coalition doesn't does not want this deal to be um, dismissed. So obviously, they have an interest in, in in intervening in the case. All right. Well, thank you, Ava, so much. Uh, I'm glad you're safe down there, and thanks for your continued coverage. Thanks again to Kaylin, Simone, and Ava. Thanks also to our producer, Andrew Constantino. But mostly, thanks to you, the audience, for listening in. And please continue to log into DebtWire.com for the latest on distressed mini credits. Have a good day.